Good evening, friends. So wonderful to have you here with us, being able to see faces. Four months of staring right down there and not moving my face the whole way through the sermon. It is so much more a relief to be able to look around and see you there, even if I can't tell whether you're frowning or smiling. Uh, it's still great to have you here. Uh, can I encourage you to grab your Bibles and have them open in front of you? Uh, it'll be a help to me and to you uh, to have it there to reflect on, uh, to be familiar with, uh, because no doubt there'll be times in which you want to come back uh, and have a look at it. If you'd like to follow where we're going in the service, and particularly to make note of some of the other passages from scriptures that I'll be referring to, it's all there on your sermon outline sheet uh, as well, and I trust that'll be a help. Uh, a passage like this one is perhaps a little bit more intense than I would have planned for our first Sunday back in each other's company. A little bit easier to preach on if you're there the other side of the camera, don't have to sense the awkward shifting in the seats and so on. Sexual immorality, mentions of Satan, casting people out. I didn't plan it. And yet, in God's providence, it's perhaps actually the perfect opportunity to be reminded that there may be things that are more damaging to the church community, to God's own household, than even a virus as crippling as COVID-19. That's what we'll find in this evening's passage. Uh, in recent weeks, I've been watching the streaming series Morning Wars, or as it's called in the US, uh, The Morning Show. Uh, it's set in the thick of the breakout of the Me Too movement, and it follows the fictional unravelling of America's premier morning show, uh, in the, on the TV. Mitch Kessler, who you can see there uh, at the desk, is the charismatic news anchor, or at least one of them, co-anchor for the show. And he enjoys the affirmation, not only pretty much of the majority of the US TV viewing population, but also, it seems, just about everyone he works with as well. Uh, the series begins with him walking through the production studio, being greeted and affirmed by just about everyone that he comes into contact with, from a production crew to fellow co-hosts on the show. Everyone knows that the status of the morning show, the status that the morning show enjoys, largely depends on him, his status, his standing, his popularity. Until that is, his abusive treatment of co-workers is unravelled, exposed, publicly, primarily his mistreatment of other women who are a part of the show's family, so to speak. Mitch's pattern of abuse comes as a surprise to just about no one who's been involved in the show. Yet because the morning show's status and standing was tied up in the affirmation of its morally compromised co-star, no one was willing to call out, to challenge or to judge Mitch's behaviour. Instead, they all keep on affirming him as the indispensable star that keeps the show moving forward, making themselves complicit effectively in an injustice that proves ultimately tragic and destructive for just about everyone involved. The shocking thing is that we see almost the same kind of dynamic at work in the Corinthian church as Paul addresses it in tonight's passage of chapter 5. Uh, open up with me to chapter 5, and we'll, look, we'll begin in verse 1. It's a similar dynamic of affirmation given to one who is actually 
causing harm to the wider body and a community that is effectively complicit uh, in what this person is doing. Chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Uh, the Corinthian church have been exposed as actively complicit in the kind of sexual misconduct that even the pagan, pagan world would have been scandalised by. Uh, the term that's used here for sexual immorality is a very broad one. In a couple of weeks' time, Paul gives a bit more detailed focus to it and we'll reflect on it together then. And yet this is a form of sexual immorality that Paul says even the pagans would be raising their eyebrows at. And, and yet it probably doesn't strike us as the worst kind of se sexual indiscretion that we could imagine, perhaps not the worst kind of sexual indiscretion that we've even witnessed. A man in the church is openly sexually involved with his father's wife, his stepmother. It's worth pausing to ask for a moment, to ask this question, what exactly is it that is most scandalous about this particular form of sexual immorality? It's not likely the scandal of different ages. After all, husbands often married wives who were quite a lot younger than them in the ancient world. It's not out of the realms of likelihood that this son and his stepmother are probably close in age. Uh, there's no reason to imagine that the arrangement isn't consensual, or at least as consensual as things got in the ancient world. It's even possible that the man's father has actually no longer living and that this wife is widowed and he's married his father's wife. Despite our instinctive discomfort and distaste, despite explicit Old Testament commands that this kind of relationship was not to occur, it's perhaps not immediately obvious to us why this kind of behaviour should be so especially concerning and offensive. We'll find out later on that certainly wasn't the only form of sexual immorality that was happening in the church in Corinth. Uh, you might recall that the Corinthian culture was one that was utterly consumed by concern and care over one's status and one's standing, uh, by a feverish desire to establish and secure your own sense of worth, your own standing in the world. And in the ancient cities such as Corinth, especially such as Corinth, uh, they used the word to, to describe someone as being Corinthianized as having become completely debauched. In a city like Corinth, sex played a profoundly significant role in how a person expressed their sense of worth, their status, their standing in comparison with others. Uh, marriage relationships were focused primarily, at least for the wife, on the provision of respectable heirs, heirs who were of honourable status to carry on the family name. Uh, while pleasure and desire were often pursued, at least by the husband, with a mistress, with someone outside the marriage. Men would express, express their social status by sexually dominating other men of lower social standing than they were, perhaps a slave, or those who didn't have the same kind of family connections. Boys would often engage in sexual relationships with men of greater social standing 
as a way of being initiated into networks of adult power and influence. It's quite likely that the man who's being spoken of in this passage was using sex with his father's wife as a way of establishing or elevating his own status and standing in the family household. In fact, we see this pattern expressed and condemned throughout the Old Testament. Uh, We see a dynamic just like it in 2 Samuel chapter 16. I wonder if you recall uh, this moment in the history of King David, Israel's greatest king. King David's son, Absalom, was making a play for his father's kingdom. He wanted to take over the kingdom. And in order to undermine King David's status and his standing in the eyes of all of Israel, Absalom set up a tent on the roof of the royal palace where all of Israel could see it. And then he had all the king's wives brought into him that he might sleep with them. And in doing so, Absalom was at the same time exalting himself and shaming his father, the king, showing himself to be the only viable candidate to take on the position of status and honour of a king. And it's likely that something like this kind of power play explains the Corinthian church's response to the man's behaviour. Verse 2, they are filled with pride. Verse 6, we find them boasting even. It also explains the comment about this behaviour being unthinkable for pagans. Pagans weren't shy when it came to sexuality. They expressed in all kinds of ways that would shock us much more than the one that's described here. But one thing pagans would never do would to be shame someone who is of higher status than them. You might shame those who are below you, but to shame someone who is of greater status than you, such as your father, that was unthinkable. And so it seems to have been for the behaviour of this particular guy. In having his father's wife for himself, this man had perhaps taken over the household of great social status and standing? Could it be even, perhaps, that this guy had a house in which even parts of the church were meeting? Whatever the exact social dynamic at play, we don't know the specific details, the church were basking in the reflected glow of a church member who enjoyed their honour, who enjoyed status and standing and influence. Perhaps the church wasn't that keen on how this man was going about exalting himself, but they certainly weren't worried enough to call the behaviour out. They certainly weren't worried enough to risk losing the benefits of sharing fellowship with this man. Not too dissimilar, really, to the dynamic that was going on in the show Morning Wars, in which many people knew that if they were to call out Mitch's behaviour it would adversely affect them. Perhaps their own career would be curtailed. Perhaps the popularity of the show that they'd invested so much in would take a dive and they would lose some of their own status and honour. Whatever the reason it was that each of the people on the show had, each of them affirmed Mitch, let him keep doing what he was doing out of some kind of fear or anxiety that they would suffer if they stopped affirming him. And likewise, the Corinthians' affirmation of this man proved corrosive for the integrity of the Corinthian church. Uh, In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, critiqued a very similar failure of integrity in the churches that he wrote to. 
where those who were wealthy, who had social status and standing, were given a free pass on a whole range of things, the ways in which they treated others, because it was believed they brought honour and gravitas to the Christian community. But instead of proud affirmation, the righteous response, Paul says in verse 2, did you notice there, the right response would have been to mourn, to have been humbled and heartbroken that such behaviour could have taken root in their community, to have been grieved their own complicity in the situation. But instead of grieving, the Corinthian church just doubles down in their support of the man. It's a grievous thing when a church is willing to excuse malice and wickedness in the name of protecting and promoting its own brand. For it is never God's interests that are being protected whenever sin is either covered up or redefined so as to excuse it. Uh, Beginning of last year, we had a group of people from across the different congregations of the church getting together and putting together some of the, the values that typified the way in which we like to think of our shared community here at Summer Hill. We were just about to release it uh, when COVID hit. It's it's already been completed. Uh, We'll see if we can do that in the next couple of weeks, uh, maybe early on next year. But one of the things that came through most clearly in people's response about what they valued, what they longed to see true in the church at Summer Hill, was integrity, was a concern that we proclaim, that what we proclaim, sorry, is aligned with how we conduct ourselves. That certainly wasn't true of the Corinthian church. Rather than self-justifying affirmation, Paul insists that it is only clear-eyed judgment that can ultimately cure the Corinthians' complicity in this behaviour that compromised their integrity. We often think, don't we, of affirmation as something that encourages and builds up community and judgment as something that's destructive and tears down community. But what we see in the morning wars and in this situation is that often affirmation can be misused to create devastation. And actually judgment can sometimes be exactly what's needed to right those things that are wrong. Uh, Have a look with me at verses 3 and following. Verses 3 and following. Paul says, for my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. If the Corinthian church are perhaps too timid or just too complicit in or too socially risk-averse to shame the offending man by calling him out, then Paul certainly isn't. Paul sees the true nature of the situation with such horrified clarity that he'll even claim to be offering judgment in Jesus' name as he condemns the man. He is saying... The judgment I give is the one that Jesus gives upon him. All that's left for the Corinthians to do 
is to enact the judgment that Paul has already passed, to put him out of their fellowship together. Paul doesn't simply issue a face-saving press relief, distancing himself and the church from the private sexual proclivities of this prominent member of their fellowship. Rather, Paul instructs the church to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What on earth does that even mean? How exactly might you even go about handing someone over to Satan? And what is this flesh that Paul imagines is going to be destroyed by taking this action? Uh, When Paul is using the term flesh here, he's using it to refer to a way of life that is animated by our own sin-compromised wisdom and desire. To live by the flesh, to live by the flesh is to live in a way that is animated by our own compromised wisdom and desire marked and stained and shaped by sin. Now, if this man truly and definitely and defiantly decides to go on living by the flesh, guided by his own wisdom and desires, then he can indeed do so, but not within the household of God. Perhaps Satan will give him a couch to crash on while he explores living out his own flesh-driven desires and ambitions but the church is not to host him as he runs and directs his life that kind of way. There's no vindictiveness or malice in Paul's words here. Paul's heartfelt desire is that this man may grasp where living by the flesh, where living by his own wisdom and desire will ultimately lead him. Perhaps he'll wake up to where he's headed and return instead to the household of his gracious heavenly father. Uh, In fact, we read a little reference that appears to be referring back to this very situation in Paul's next letter to the Corinthian church, which will pop up on the screen. Uh, That's 2 Corinthians, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. There Paul writes, uh, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. There is tender grace in those words, aren't there? The judgment that Paul had called the Corinthian church to exercise with respect to this guy seemingly did bring this man back home to his gracious heavenly father. How much grief might have been averted if they just hadn't affirmed him every step of the way? If someone had spoken to him, pulled him up, asked him what he was doing, Highlight perhaps where the gospel was at odds with the way in which he was behaving and living. How much grief on all sides might have been avoided. Uh, There are a couple of cautions that we should bear in mind as we work through a passage like this one. Paul certainly doesn't have in mind that this kind of judgment is ever a solo project. 
You know, something that you go home, think through this evening, how am I going to put this this passage into practice, see if there's one or two people that I can cast out of fellowship. It's not a solo project that Paul is speaking about here, something we do off our own bats. Nor is it a decision that the pastor makes on his own and then keeps under wraps to avoid any kind of hint of a scandal or awkward questions later on. It's something that is only done as a last resort with much grief and in view of the gathered church. Uh, Next week, Paul continues on to speak about the place of judgment in the gathered Christian church, and we'll think a little bit more diffi- uh, a little bit more deeply, I guess, about some of the different complexities and difficulties that come up with exercising judgment in a way that honors God. So hold out for that for next week. We won't go into a wide range of specifics uh, this evening. Paul illustrates, though, he goes on to illustrate in the next little section, why it is so important that the Corinthian church do take action, that they don't just continue to affirm. Uh, He points this out for us in verses 6 to 8. Have a look there with me, verse 6. Paul continues, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeasts, so that you may be a new, unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is referring here to a bread-making process that was common throughout the ancient world and in the lives of Israel as well. Perhaps you had a bit of a crack at making sourdough or something in one of the lockdowns. Probably had given up any hope of trying to perfect it in the second lockdown. Maybe you had a crack in the first one. Uh, But any time a loaf of bread was being baked, someone would take a small bit of the dough and set it aside to gradually ferment for the coming weeks. They'd just leave it there fermenting away. I don't know where they'd put it, uh, perhaps in a cool, cool, dark cupboard or something like that. And this old bit of fermented dough, which is called leaven, the old leavened dough would then later be batched into subsequent batches of new dough as they were making bread. And the fermented uh, characteristics of this fermented dough would spread through the new batch of dough, producing the gases that give its bread, the bread, the flavour and the aerated texture and so on. The, the fermented dough would shape and influence the characteristics of the new fresh dough that was about to be baked. That's leavened bread. And every year at Passover, when the Israelites celebrated their escape from slavery in Egypt, they were to throw away all of their old lumps of leavening dough. All that dough that they kept there in the, the cupboard, ready to make the next batch of bread, they were to throw all of it out. They had to hunt through the house, you might remember from the Exodus reading, and clear every last shred of that old leavened dough, throw it away. They were throw it away as a reminder, as a symbol that they had abandoned their former lives that they lived when they were slaves in Egypt and had been led to live new lives as God led them to freedom from captivity. This man's flagrant sexual immorality was reintroducing back into church life the kind of malice and wickedness that they had been called to leave behind when they'd become 
believers. This man's unapologetic sexual immorality was a living, breathing provocation for others to also return with him to the old pattern of life that Jesus had freed them from. That's what Paul's getting at when he says, get rid of the old dough, of the old leavened dough. Get rid of your old patterns of living. The leaven of your former life is not to determine the character of our new life together. Even with all this pretty sobering language of calling this man to account and judgment, it's worth noting that Paul isn't simply promoting a general attitude of judgmentalism in this passage. It's not as if the Christian church is just to take delight in judging anyone who comes across their path. Paul gets a little bit more specific in our final verses. Have a look with me at verse 9. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, that is, a Christian, a member of God's household, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. As Jesus urged his followers to remove the log from their own eyes before they worried about the speck in the eyes of others, so here Paul is concerned about removing the enormous log that is in the Corinthian church's own eye rather than fretting over the various failings that may or may not take place outside the church community. I'm not going to delve into the specific of each of these sins uh, listed here today. We will have a, a, a wrestle with them in two weeks' time when we look at another passage that, that kind of goes into them in a bit more detail and reflects on why they are such an offence to a Christian community. We're not going to go into those specifics today. But Paul's call to call upon the church to break fellowship isn't here being just applied to any and every believer who bears the slightest remaining mark of these sins upon their lives. He's not just referring to anyone who might have shown a hint of drunkenness or slander or sexual immorality. If that were the case, we may as well all form a line at the door and file out tonight for the very last time. Nor is Paul encouraging individual believers to apply this judgment themselves. It's not as if he's getting to the application point of a sermon and he says, take out your phones now and identify three sinners that you can cancel lunch with this coming week. It's not an individual thing that he's getting people to act on solo. Paul is speaking about one who calls themselves a Christian brother or sister, but who is unrepentantly bent on baking these sinful patterns of living into their present lives. Leaven was added into the new dough to make bread on purpose, to give it the character that the baker wanted. Paul is speaking about someone who calls himself a Christian brother or sister, but who is unrepentantly bent on baking any of these sinful patterns of life 
into their own lives. He's speaking about someone who is actively pursuing a life that is leavened with a character of their pre-Christian days. To continue affirming another believer in such a pattern of living, either actively or passively, is not only to be complicit in endangering their own soul, but is to risk compromising the character of the community that has fellowship with them as well. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, we'll come back next week to think through a little bit more about the complexities and dangers of exercising judgment. And we'll do that next week. You might like to have a read through uh, the end of chapter 5 again and into the beginning of chapter 6. That's where we'll be sitting next week. But the show I mentioned at the beginning of this evening, Morning Wars, was a sobering reminder that in some contexts, affirmation can be corrosive and destructive to the integrity of a community of people. Affirmation isn't an ultimate good when it allows mistreatment and wickedness and evil treatment of others to flourish and to continue. Sometimes what is most needed for the health of a community is clear-eyed judgment that can bring a cure to that which is fermenting in an unhelpful, damaging, corrosive kind of way. But we're always to keep in mind that this judgment that Paul is calling the Corinthians to exercise is out of a desperate longing for this man, that he might come to his senses and recognise that in leavening his life with his old way of living, he is forsaking all that the Lord Jesus is offering to share with him. The call to give up affirming people just because it's the most comfortable thing to do is ultimately what is most loving both for them and the community of which they're a part. How about we pray and ask that we might not be a group of believers who affirms that which is what most easy, most comfortable to affirm, but that we would love one another uh, and even those amongst us who don't share or wish to share our way of life, that we might care for them in the way in which we respond to them. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus we have one who has acted as our sacrifice, who has died our death, who has taken our punishment for us and in so doing has set us free from the leaven that characterised our former ways of life. As Israel were called to do, Father, we ask that by the gracious work of your Spirit, you might enable us to root out any remaining leaven that's hidden at the back of the cupboards of our own lives, that we would put that aside, that it might not begin to re-exert itself and shape not only our own personal lives, but the way in which we relate to one another as well. And Father, we ask that we would never be so self-interested that we would refuse to call one another to account so that, Father, there might be none of us on the last day who fails to delight in your grace and mercy, your embrace, your recognition of us as members of your own 
church household. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, friends, if there are questions,